Trucks in Babylon, a Western Seminary podcast. I'm Todd Miles. I'm here with Ryan Lister. Hey, everyone. And today is, is a little bit different episode for us. It's an exciting one. We're doing a bit of a crossover episode uh, with one of my favorite podcasts. Outside of Food Trucks in Babylon. Of course. Of course. And, and that podcast would be Three Chords and the Truth. It's an apologetics podcast, and it's also a how to find general revelation and truth in in rock and roll music fascinating stuff we are thrilled to be joined by timothy paul jones and garrick bailey of three chords and the truth we're going to be talking about music we're going to talk about the impassibility of god and a host of other things we hope you enjoy this episode All right, this is Timothy Paul Jones, and I am from Southern Seminary, and I am here with people from Indiana, the distant land of Indiana, mm. from Kentucky, and from Western Seminary in a far, far distant land. And we are together with the Food Trucks in Babylon crossover episode with Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics podcast. And to start off, we've got to do a superhero question, especially since Todd Miles is the maestro author of that amazing book, Superheroes Can't Save You, which was actually one of the early, early episodes on Three Chords and the Truth. Like third or fourth episode was on Superheroes Can't Save You with the amazing Todd Miles. And so with that in mind, let's think about, is this episode taking these two podcasts from two vastly different locations, is it more like an Avengers and X-Men team-up where they're in the same universe, maybe both an Earth-616, all in the same universe, everything like that? Is it an Avengers-X-Men team-up, or is it more like a DC-Marvel crossover where we have two very different universes being thrown together toward one another and put in comic books that generally didn't turn out really, really well, but we'll leave that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what is it? As this Uh, podcast is going right now. Yes, that's right. Exactly, exactly. Starting with a hard-hitting question. I like this. Yes. Is this more an Avengers X-Men team-up or a DC-Marvel crossover? Which is it more like? Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, this is Ryan Lister here from which which podcast am I in again? Yeah, that's food, right. This, yeah, one? Yeah. this one's food, food trucks and uh, the truth. Uh, yeah. yeah, food trucks in Babylon. <laughs> food trucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. coming, coming, food uh, trucks and the truth. That's all, it. Yes, there I like it is. That. We just did it. We just did it. Um, yeah, out here in Portland, out here in the nether regions, I guess. Uh, I would probably argue that this is uh, this is a DC Marvel uh, mm. sort of crossover, predominantly because my friend here, Todd Miles, is. Very much a DC guy, oh. uh, and uh, he's committed to that. Even in the midst mm. of all these, movies. I mean, he'll he'll tip his cap to the Marvel uh, universe. He'll go he'll go watch those movies. I do, um, but he suffers through it, uh, waiting for <laughs> uh, waiting for the DC movies to maybe one day catch up. Mm. Uh, but I don't know. I don't see it happening. Yeah. New heavens, new earth, perhaps. Again, yes. And then Todd always calls me his Robin to his Batman. So I'm d- that's the way I'm just sort of <laughs> figuring into all this. I'm not sure I've ever actually said that before. I I think you're hoping. I see it in I think your you're eyes. Hoping I see it in your eyes, Todd. I was going to say the same. I was going to say the same thing, not because mm. of my allegiance to DC, mm. um, but it feels like the superheroes are from Marvel and DC. They're they're on the side of of truth and justice and good and, and, and that sort of thing. And yet in very different worlds. And, and anytime I go to Louisville, Kentucky, I feel like I'm just in a really <laughs> different universe. And, and I hear about what goes on at Southern seminary and it feels just very distant, very distant. Mm. That's right. And yeah. you could also probably say something to the, just the uh, amount of uh, financial backing, you know, the MC, <laughs> MC universe <laughs> That's right. has made, <laughs> A lot more money than the DC universe when it yeah. comes to the, the box office. And so I'm kind of feeling that tension as well. We, we might have to come yeah. up with a different comic book universe to scale That's down right. yeah. to, is, to, to our budget over here. Yeah. So. Teenage Mutant Ninja. I don't know. Oh. No, well, they've done some oh. DC stuff. So oh, my gosh. So, so, no, we can't even go there. It's we can't even happening. go there. How about uh, you? I, 
I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna defer to TBJ first. I'm still mulling this over in my mind. I really think time. it is a DC Marvel, but I was thinking in a very different way. I just think the Pacific Northwest and where we are, more along the lines of what Todd was saying, the Pacific Northwest is a very different place than where we're at here. It really is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and not only that, I think it's also we're, we're going about truth and good and justice and all of that. But both of our podcasts and our emphases are just different. Mm-hmm. We're just looking at different things, running on different tracks, but toward the same truth. So I'm going to go with a DC Marvel crossover that is far more like that, but ours is going to be better than Mm -hmm. the comic books where they did the DC Marvel crossovers, which didn't turn out well, usually. That's for sure. Well, we can hope so. So I really like y'all's arguments. Those are all really good. All three of y'all. Really? I I do not disagree uh, but I'm, but I might make a different argument that um, one could say uh, that we are more like an Avengers X Men team up. Uh, we are um, as brothers in Christ in in the same universe, right? That we are um, we are on the the same team, though in two different very con- uh, very different contexts, and that that here in the southern Indiana Kentuckyana region, uh, we are very kind of Midwestish all American type folks like the Avengers, uh, with you. Uh, mutant-like uh, heroes <laughs> out just, in the Pacific Northwest, right? You, yeah, you e- even, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. th- that in a sense, you you are uh, heroes, but uh, heroes of very strange sort. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, I think both answers work. I just wanted to. I just we couldn't all four say Smart. the same thing. Smart. So yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, most most of the people out here, I would say, are trending to to look more like Wolverine. Yes. Uh, yes. In, in Louisville, I would assume. But. Yep. I, gosh, those sideburns! I wish I had them. <laughs> well, we've talked about uh, yeah, we've talked about Marvel, Avengers, DC, everything like that. But uh, when it comes down to it, I think uh, that at least Garrick and I are not so much DC as AC DC type mm. people, and so that's yes. our what that's our segue. transition right what there. There segue. we go, right there. Nice that segue. was a master segue right that's there. Right. To but but if you call it and say it was a great segue, then it wasn't actually a oh, great. Sorry, one. sorry. you can <laughs> edit that out. So, yeah, we, we'll do that. So it so. The other question we often ask on our podcast, which we shall call this one either Food Trucks um, and and The Truth or Three Chords in Babylon, which would actually be a great album name for mm, the Rolling Stones, be. Three Chords mm-hmm. in Babylon. That would be an amazing album title. But if you could play in any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you do? Todd, give us this truth. Bring this wisdom that you have about if you could play in any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you do? Yeah, well, uh, so Journey. I I would have to say Journey. Yes. Because I am a child of of the 70s and 80s. And uh, true story, uh, I grew up in this tiny little town where there was no chance that Journey would ever come. Right, unless they totally and completely lost their way. But a, a fellow running for student body president in my sophomore year, his primary campaign platform was to get Journey to come and do the junior prom, and he won in a landslide. No one cared. No one cared that there was no chance Journey was going to ever show up on the south coast of Oregon, but, but, they, but he still won. I absolutely uh, love what, that. Did they show up? Uh, no. no. Do you think he even I, I attempted? Still, I, I'm, still, I'm sure he did there. not. I'm sure he never even attempted. So he probably has a great future in politics, right? Yeah. Just, just say <laughs> what will right. ever get you elected with no intention whatsoever mm. of following up. Mm. Yeah, you that. should have impeached him. I mean, you yeah. totally should have impeached <laughs> for, him. <laughs> for, for failure to keep a campaign promise. Yeah. Um, I, I am so non-musically talented. I, I, I tell That's people that I am the least talented musician He's per right. hour of piano lessons. Absolutely. Endured. <laughs> Six years of piano <laughs> lessons endured. I can barely get through chopsticks. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I would have to be just the person in the band who, like, distributed water bottles and whatever else they wanted to drink. At, merch table. You could do yeah, the merch table. Yeah, that, yeah, that that's those, all I'm qualified for. Those are the unsung heroes, merch <laughs> table. 
So in a sense, you're saying that this guy was just a city boy, mm. right? <laughs> Born and raised in South South Oregon. Myrtle Point. Well, there's South no. Point. Okay. Well, I yeah. mean, took the midnight. There train. is no South Myrtle Point, so so well, it could be. There's, it could well, there's be. also no South Detroit. So that's so exactly that right. Works. Yeah. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Man, you know, I bet he's still there calling Journey right now, yeah. trying to get them <laughs> yeah. to the prom. Yeah, I, I want to get a Myrtle. I have been to Myrtle Point with you. You have been. You have there been. is no way Journey's going to <laughs> Myrtle Point <laughs> yeah. at all, at all. Uh, I get for well, first I thought Todd was going to say Blue Oyster Cult and maybe play the triangle because I think or more cowbell, more cowbell. Oh. I could have been it. So I, 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 I could have done that. Have you seen that skit? No, I haven't. All right. Well, we've got work to do. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. Uh, for myself, uh, I am a child of '90s grunge, uh, oh, and I landed. I landed in Pearl Jam. Oh. And so I would be, if I could be anybody. When I was growing up, if I could be anybody, this is a really weird uh, uh, place to land. But I, I always wanted to be Stone Gossard in Pearl Jam, the rhythm guitarist. Uh, he has this whole trajectory all the way through uh, sort of that late 80s, 90 grunge movement in the, uh, in the Seattle scene. Uh, and I just loved every lick he came up with. So, Jeez. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> Sorry, you can join me. If you want, I mean, Pearl Jam has a lot of rotating drummers. So yes. if you want to yes, be just yes. one of those, feel free to yes. jump in. Jeez. Uh, yeah, yellow lead better. That is, I was just playing that two or three days ago on the guitar, and that is just one of the greatest songs ever. It doesn't even matter that the lyrics make no sense. The yellow lead better is just yeah. one of the greatest songs ever. It is a, it's a lovely lick there, and I mean, oh, you can just is. tell he's ripping off Jimi Hendrix the whole time, but it's it's a glorious song. Yeah. Uh, you oh, you just crushed me. I I I. Do you want me to take I it back? Shouldn't, I shouldn't, I something else? No, I shouldn't have let <laughs> you go first. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a purely sentimental pick. I mean, it, it's it is one of my all you know, Pearl Jam is one of my all time favorite bands. It was uh, one of the earliest uh, concerts I went to. Um, I got fun fact. I got to um, stand on side stage at a at a Pearl Jam concert, uh, which King's X opened for yeah. one oh, of, nice. uh, one yeah. of, one of Timothy's favorite groups. And, um, I got to pat the, sh the back of the King of the singer of King's X as he was coming off stage and told him good job. And, uh, my brother, my brother who worked in the music industry just, just made fun of me nice. for decades, decades to come. So Exercising that gift of encouragement. That's right. Yes, that's nice. right. Well, nice. Real quick, um, Eric, I, I heard yeah. a podcast with him where he talked about this young man telling him <laughs> yeah, yeah. he did a great job. <laughs> changed changed the trajectory of his he career. Said, his name was Garrick. So, yep. Yeah. So I got to go backstage <laughs> that night, um, and and didn't get to meet uh, Eddie Vedder because he was not in a state of mind to see <laughs> other human beings. Um, but I did get to meet uh, Mike McCready and uh, Jeff Ament. I was I was a young bass player at the time, yeah. so that was big for me. Anyways, uh, what, but what year you, was this? This. Oh goodness. Uh, it, so it was the it was the was um verse it was the verse <laughs> it was the verses tour so 93 94 somewhere in there yeah yeah um yeah probably 94 95 actually yeah i think this was for it might have been for around my 11th birthday i can't remember 13th birthday something That's like great. that it all i i don't have my, my memory is has tanked over the last few years so but i but <laughs> I, I have to go with something else so um another Another big band in my in my life at various times. Um, oh, that's not rock and roll. Well, no, no, that's not. I can go. I can go with Beastie Boys. I can yeah. do it. Oh, I yeah. can do it because yeah, they have. Absolutely. I mean, they started as a <laughs> punk rock band, uh, and always, always kept a bit of of rock uh, throughout their their albums. And um, so that was a big part of my story. And uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with it. I'm I'm gonna I'm a, I am. Still at my advanced age, a little, a little bit rock, a little bit hip hop. I mean, come on, yeah. Can't you, can't you see that? Just, you, so you look, you look like you could fit in with the Beastie Boys, actually. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Certainly the the older version. So, yeah, it was either it was either Beastie Boys or Metallica. I'm going. I think I'm gonna go with Beastie Boys. Very good. 
Uh, whatever I did, it would be a drummer because a drummer is the one thing I've never been. I've played bass in a band. I've played keyboards. I've done vocals. I've done guitar, but I've never been able to play the drums. And I tried for a long time and could not play the drums. So I think I would go for the drummer either in Metallica uh, or in uh, Van Halen just because I would like to sit up there and watch both fun. of those bands every <laughs> night while playing the drums. And yes. uh, so anyway, I would go. Uh, with one of those two those are the two huge bands in my life uh that have been there all the way over the years through the years and so i'd have to be either lars ulrich or alex van halen would be where i what i would be if i were in a rock band yeah i had great answers all around everyone i'm i'm a big fan big fan of of your answers <laughs> nice That's all right yeah. well so so you three chords in the truth and apologetics or the apologetics podcast if, right. if, if, like if i remember Ohio correctly if i remember correctly yeah <laughs> like uh the southern baptist theological the, yeah right it's capital yeah. t-h-e that's, yes. that's right yes yeah so we uh an, an apologetics question for us uh what what we've noticed here in in our neck of the woods is is that the the apologetics questions have changed a bit over the years that's that's probably not that remarkable that that they change but but they've changed in this way uh we 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 aren't spending as much time asking questions surrounding does god exist it's Mm. it's more uh, is god good and and so apologetics has a lot to do to in in our context with uh, defending the sexual ethic of the Bible, uh, talking about those problem passages, uh, thinking through and and justifying the, uh, the the like the Canaanite genocide text, those sorts of things. That's that's the kind of apologetic battleground uh, where where we're at here. It, is it the same same thing in in Louisville? I think really that's everywhere right now. As I think about just a couple of years ago, teaching a uh, a, a series on Christian sexual ethics in a group of youth or with a group of youth at Sojourn Church in Midtown uh, here in Louisville, uh, where I serve as one of the pastors, uh, that pushback against the Bible's sexual ethic is just huge. And I think, I don't think that's slowing down anytime soon. And what's fascinating is just, building on that, many of these students who were pushing back against that, they actually believe God exists. Like yeah. they don't have a yes. question about the existence of God. They're not asking, is there really a God? They're assuming and actually believe in God. They just don't want the, what we find in the God of the Bible yeah. is what yeah. it comes in, 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 in some sense. And I remember one girl that she came up to me afterwards and, and she asked the question, which I think is she put it in words, what a lot of people seem to be asking. And it's, it, she asked, can I just believe in Jesus, but not have to believe the Bible? Mm-hmm. And that was her mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, how are you going to get your information about be- the Jesus you believe in? Like, what are you going to believe about Jesus? And she said, well, I'll get, and she started naming things that were in the Bible. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you didn't believe the Bible. And and what I, I tried to gently do in that is to show it's not that you disbelieve the Bible. It's that you want to believe the Bible selectively. <laughs> you yeah. want to believe only certain parts of the Bible that fit with your, your predispositions on that. Um, but I do think it's true that, that we are seeing a change in that. And what we have to turn people toward sometimes is for them to recognize that uh, the, the that what God gives is good, as mm-hmm. in what he his sexual ethic that he presents is good. He is his his word about even things like the Canaanite genocide, things like that. There is some good in that, but I think what it also calls us to do is we actually have to own up to the many places that Christians haven't been good. And that's one of the things that I think is hard for a lot of apologists to do is to own up to the fact that Christians frequently haven't been good for the world and haven't been good in terms of the way they've treated others. We have to own up to that at some level. Yeah, Todd, that was the first thing that came to mind is uh, when you asked your question is that there's so many, so many folks inside the church are 
asking similar questions that mm-hmm. and and I think that bears evidence to the fact that that the that these are the questions questions of god's goodness the the uh questions of, about the existence of of evil and the existence of god um uh, I think this bears evidence that these are the kind of predominant questions outside of the faith because so many inside the faith are asking them and and it's it's also why I think the best apologetics and the best apologists are 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 actually um folks who uh, a- approach uh, these topics um both theologically and pastorally okay. um that uh that instead instead of right instead of pre-theologically and and scientifically mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's kind of where we are in our uh in our society and, and um pastor theologians who are addressing these issues and doing so w- with both both an insight um and a uh a compassion for uh, kind of the the changing culture of of our society um, are I think doing the best job of addressing these questions. It's helpful. So, how do you think we prepare to be good apologists? Then? <sighs> it, it's it, it's it's not a matter anymore necessarily of of uh, thinking primarily philosophically. Mm. Um, it it feels like there's a lot of hermeneutics now uh bible interpretation that that pastoral touch that you were talking about how we say something is almost as important as 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 what we say um how how do we approach training and training people for apologetics you aren't going to be a good apologist unless you're grounded in the local church and and i think it's really important that we have to do this from the vantage of the local church. I think that that's that, that we can't do it apart from a community. But I think the step beyond that, I would say, is you hit it exactly. You use the word hermeneutics. I found, for example, there are so many apologetics questions that are solvable simply by people recognizing that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Just simply uh-huh. seeing that, that solves a lot of the apologetics issues and questions, not all of them, but there's a lot that that really does solve by seeing that. And that's just one example that that I can think of in which uh, this this it is a hermeneutic thing, but it's a hermeneutic that is enacted in the community and that we learn in the community. And and so I think that an ecclesial, we might say, apologetic and a hermeneutical apologetic are going to be a lot more important in the future than a cosmological argument or a teleological argument. How do you you see apologetics being done, or maybe you're thinking through this right now, uh, in, in, in the wake of the Ravi Zacharias scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been really impacted and um, I don't know if impressed is the right word, but uh, a lot of the reading that I've been doing <clears throat> in the last year in the apologetics space has, um, has really been focused on, uh, narrative, right? uh, narrative, some, you know, Alistair McGrath will call it narrative apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Josh Shatro will just talk about uh, telling, telling stories, stories telling right? Story. Telling yep. their story. And um, I, I th- the reason why I feel so strongly about uh, this kind of this trajectory of apologetics is that uh, it it is hermeneutic in the fact that um, in in order to do this well, you you have to have this understanding, this robust understanding of the true story of the world. To use um, uh, Goheen and Bartholomew's language, but then there's this this additional step of n- knowing people, getting to know people, getting to know their story, um, as well as getting to know the stories that they believe about reality, about themselves, about, uh, you know, about the world and, and to, and to be able to connect 
those stories to to be able to uh, connect and correct graciously correct by um, trying to introduce them to this 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 greater story that they already that they already probably um, have shadows of of belief uh, about and and it strikes me this strikes me as a, a very relational task um or to you know to say pastoral like uh, mm-hmm. like i've said and and um i th- i really believe this is the way forward and it's and it's not only a this isn't just hey here's one particular technique of apologetics it to me it's almost here, here's a here's a style a way to relate to people um, and that within this relating, uh, there are, you know, you can, you can come from all different types of, um, uh, apologetic methods, uh, whatnot, um, that you'll be able to have all types of different various conversations, but you'll be able to do so through this, uh, through the context of relationship. And, um, I think that's, I think that's crucial in the apologetic task. So there was probably an isolation that was happening with Zacharias that Gosh, was cutting yeah. him off from the realities of what he was even speaking. About. Yeah, okay. I, and I mean, I don't know the relationship between Ravi and the local church, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, this was a a separate, massive, you know, parachurch movement um, that. Uh, perhaps um fell into some of the some of the classic trappings of of parachurch ministry that um that this it's not inherent and it's not necessarily the case but if not uh careful uh they they can uh, allow themselves as organizations or as people to to become isolated and um not under the care or uh oversight of the local church Hi, I'm Gary Bershears, Professor of Theology here at Western Seminary. I want to let you know about a new degree at Western called the Master of Applied Biblical Leadership. It's a 36-credit-hour degree program designed for ministry leaders who have got at least a half a decade of full-time ministry involvement and are currently involved in full-time ministry, often paid church, but not always, but they have little or no seminary education. The degree is offered in a cohort format So you're meeting together once a month or maybe twice a semester with the same group of ministry leaders for a couple of years at least, and often the same professor for part of that time to do your degree together. For more information, visit westernseminary.edu. Now back to the show. Coming together here, uh, I think uh, both Ryan and Todd both teach the area of systematic theology or theology, and we're coming at this from more of an apologetics focus. So just kind of thinking through those two different um, perspectives, they're going to be slightly different. What is the relationship that you all see? So what relationship do you see between apologetics and theology. Where does apologetics fit in theology? And as I look back over church history, which is more my area and the way I look at apologetics, you can go back to, say, Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper, who basically says that apologetics is nothing more than a sort of an appendage at the very end of theology. Whereas then you flip it around the other side, you've got B.B. Warfield that says, uh, he said that apologetics precedes theology, it comes before theology in some sense, to validate the facts from which theology is built. And of course, we can find a lot of other things in between, but in your minds, from a perspective of theology, systematic theology, where do you see apologetic thing in terms of its relationship to theology? Yeah. Well, I would like to think that, that, that theology is always engaged in the apologetic task. If, if, if theology, I'm going to borrow from frame here a little bit, is, is bringing to bear God's powerful revelation, 
to all of life's ultimate questions, then, then, then that is absolutely going to be engaged in apologetics. And so, you know, we, we were just uh, talking about the, the, the goodness of God, the goodness of his revelation. Well, heavens, that's, that's doctrine of God right there. And if, if we cannot uh, study and then articulate our doctrine of God, our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of judgment, in a manner that answers specific questions that either Christians in the church are struggling with or that those outside the church have. Uh, those questions might be uh, an impediment to them believing, you know, as God takes them on their journey to faith. Uh, well, if, if we can't articulate our theology in such a way that answers those questions, then how good is our theology? Um, so I would see them as 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 hand in hand, uh, integrated. Yeah, and I think you see, um, sort of, even from a biblical perspective, when you see the biblical authors or those like Paul doing theology, uh, they're always doing it within their context. <laughs> they're they're engaged uh, in the world, bringing to bear. Uh, real transcendent truth about who God is into the everyday experience, confusion and chaos of the world they're, uh, they're, they're walking into and living out. So I want to say that there's actually sort of like a pulling together of, of you know, theology, apologetics, and discipleship that should be taking place uh, in, in, a, in a healthy way. I've also recognized in my classes that when I speak from uh, just large theological categories, um, oftentimes the eyes glaze over hmm. uh, until until there's some handles on how this actually plays out in the world. So one of the things our world is consistently asking is not what, but why. And specifically, why does this matter? And so I think that's where you start seeing that intersection of theology and apologetics, and then to push them into the church, push them in towards that discipleship mechanism of this isn't just something to know about. This isn't just something to engage the world with, but it's actually something that we have to live out on our own uh, and to follow Jesus with. So, Yeah, it would have been far better for uh, Warfield and Kuiper to listen to their contemporary uh, Herman Bavink, whom I have a contractual obligation to I mention. I see him behind you. I see Bavink behind you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you're, you're sort of slowly transforming into him. I don't know if you <laughs> that. Over. That, yeah. that would be a blessing from the Lord. Uh, um, <laughs> but he, he essentially says, right, that apologetics cannot precede faith, right? It can't be some prior attempt to argue the truth of revelation. Instead, it, it assumes the truth, and it assumes uh, belief in the truth. And so he says it, 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 is not, uh, it does not, as the introductory part or the foundational science, precede theology and dogmatics. It is itself a theological science through and through, and it's one that presupposes faith and dogmatics and now maintains and defends the, the dogma against uh, the opposition to which uh, it's exposed, and so if those two guys just would have listened to old Herman, then we just <laughs> Everything, would have been in a lot all, better shape. Let's just transition this to Babylon. Is that Babink in Babylon now? <laughs> yeah. right. Yes, but I mean, to your point, Eric, and to to Bobbing's point, I mean, I think what you even our conversation earlier about what's happening in apologetics today, sort of that transition, mm -hmm. sort of from the highly philosophical, sort of. <clears throat> those big picture meta kind of questions into these very specific, well, what do I do with my Bible when I read about X? You know, that's, that, I mean, I think that's what Bobbing's talking about. That's where mm -hmm. it lands. That's where it is. That's where our, sort of our battlegrounds are these days. Mm. So, so. That wasn't as good a segue as the ACDC. It wasn't. I know. Maybe, no, I'm not, a, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a Segway guy. I'm was sorry. Bob Inc. in a band? Was he in a band? I just, uh, I, I, he wasn't. But but if he were in okay. a band, and that's my question. I, he he would, would be, be. Well, he would be um, in 
what we now call Van Halen, that for him would have been uh, Von Holland. Okay. Um, that, that, how he would have, okay. How, yeah. he, how he would have said it. I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I, 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 that just doesn't sing, though. I, it does, he, uh, I know. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't work as much, but but he would. I think he would have been with his his uh, Dutch brethren, and um, I'd like to think that he would been he would have been a heck of a, a of a keyboard player. I okay. think that's uh, I think that's where Bobby put it. Then he would have been on the keys. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. I was, the I was steady, wondering, like, the, this, the steady, calm presence there? of a rock band. Yeah. David Lee Roth. Who? Yeah. Is it? Is it David Lee Roth? Is it Sammy Hagar? Is yeah. It, is it Kuiper? Is it Bobby? What's going on? Yeah. The question is. The question is. Is which? Uh, which Van Halen would Bobby have preferred uh, to be as part right. of? And that's back to TPJ. Which would you rather have played with? Oh, definitely the Sammy Hagar version. Okay. So I'm, yeah. I'm a huge fan Hagar of the guy. same of the Sammy Hagar uh, rendition of Van Halen. Okay. He's actually thought about trying to reach out to uh, Sammy to to try to get him on the program. He's oh. he's, he's mentioned Have that before. Reached, okay, that's it's kind of kind of like getting a journey to the prom. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a campaign <laughs> promise? <laughs> yes. This is for you. If you listen to yeah. enough of our episodes, we will get Sammy Hagar. Let me add uh, TBJ real quick. The uh, did did Van Halen have? I think it's Nunu Betancourt as a lead singer for a while. The extreme no. guy. No, it was um, it was Gary Sharon they had who uh, is a Christian. It was fascinating that Gary Sharon was their lead singer for a little over a year. Who the reason you're thinking that is because he played with it. He was the singer for Extreme. Nuno That's Betancourt it. is the guitar Guitarist. player for Extreme. Yes, but Gary Sharon is a Christian, and so if you watch the concerts, then there's a song called "Fire in the Hole," which is James three set to music hmm. is one of the songs, and he would pick up a New Testament wow. and read from it some of the sections from James chapter three about the power of the tongue and everything like that okay. in their concerts during that particular tour. So, so uh, that wild. was Gary Sharon. And so you had Van Halen with a new Testament being read on stage, which is just ridiculous. But it, nice. it really crazy. is. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's why you need to be the drummer. There we right. go. Let's so <clears throat> I wanted to pose a question. That's not a, it's not a traditional apologetics question. Um, and I'm going to try to, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to simplify this <laughs> from uh, the way I, I sent it in an email. But essentially, <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing Just this. Just real quick for all the listeners, the email, yeah. I, I, I'm still scrolling to get to the bottom of the email. I, yeah. I got it. Probably yeah. about ten a.m. Yeah. I think it was pieced together. I think it was pieced together like 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 two or three emails that he kind of yep. kind of stuck together like yeah. Frankenstein's monster for us. Yeah, so, Google yeah. actually I, wrote him back and said we cannot handle <laughs> this many words. I, I, I copy and pasted a dissertation. Essentially, that's what it is. Uh, the background is um, we actually received this question from two completely different people in the, the period of a week, one from a listener and, and another from a friend of mine that just called me on the phone one day. And uh, uh, Timothy was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. I don't, I don't know how this fits in what we do. And so this seemed like a great place to ask the question because I, I, I think it is a question that, um, is is for pastor theologians and um which yeah. the three of y'all are and i just pretend um to be so plus you have the added bonus that if we get it wrong you can just blame food trucks in babylon that's right that's, that's absolutely right. right that's right, that's right. <laughs> so the question is essentially this um that uh these two gentlemen were wrestling with what we call this um uh, this doctrine of the imp the impassibility of God, right? The that that God uh, doesn't experience emotions, right? That 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 um, yeah, that he that he doesn't experience emotions. He doesn't have change of emotions and and whatnot. And and this comes from so so. There's a, a bunch of questions that kind of came in a stream uh, to me, and they were so. Does impassibility necessarily flow from this other doctrine, this, these big theological words that uh, Ryan was talking about that maybe people's eyes are going to start <laughs> glazing over out there, right? This, this other doctrine about God, uh, uh, the doctrine of immutability, which uh, essentially is the biblical witness that God does not change, 
right? It's 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 all over Scripture, said different ways, right? And that God uh, is 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 the same yesterday, today, forever. That uh, God is not I am not like man, uh, changing my mind. There's no shadow of change. It's it's all over the place, right? So, does uh, this idea of impassibility, no emotions, no change of emotions, doesn't necessarily come from this idea of God's immutability. Um, in other words, does the fact that God never changes, does that actually imply that he doesn't have real emotions or that he doesn't suffer? Um, and, and both these gentlemen went on to kind of make the same point that this question gets even gets more difficult when we begin to think about um, Jesus coming onto the scene in the Gospels, right? If if Jesus is the truest revelation, right, the the uh, visible image of the invisible God um, in in Colossians, or or the exact imprint of His nature in Hebrews, um, if that's true, then what does that say about this? Uh, this idea, this doctrine of of impassibility about God's emotions and not having them and not being able to suffer and um, is there is there a way to hold those two together? Is there is there mystery here that we uh, as we talk about this idea today that we've we've just kind of chucked uh, aside and um, anyways, my email had four hundred other uh, words and questions posted, but I think I think that I can stop there at least to start the uh the conversation and, and <clears throat> i said it was a, a pastoral uh problem because i think uh, the area of prayers where this question really comes to the people in the pews um i hear variations of the question all the time why pray does prayer work does prayer change god's mind or his actions if God is unchanging, and he has ordained all things before the foundations of the world, then what's the point of praying? I hear this all the time, and, and all of this kind of uh, falls into the same area and the same issue, the same discussion, um, I think, for our people. So there are questions in there. I'm not exactly sure what they are, <laughs> but I am now I'm just letting you two just reign free on, on your thoughts on this. Let me just start off, and then I'll let Todd give you all the real answers here. Uh, <laughs> yes. yes, excellent. <laughs> um, one thing I would do, and I think this is where a lot of the struggle happens for for most people, sort of in the pews. I mean, well, for all of us, to be quite honest, is um, just recognizing that we uh, we we often don't have this sort of lens of the creator creature distinction in play before we start talking in these categories. Um, so we begin to take all the sort of experiences, all the emotions, all the change that I experience and begin to slowly, uh, well, not well, almost directly, to, to apply them to, to God uh, so that there's a one-to-one one correlation. And what I, see, I, what I think you see in Scripture is a consistent sort of breaking of that one-to-one -one correlation yep. that there are connections, that there are... Um, there, there is, there, there are places to to sort of build bridges, but there is predominantly a, a distinction that we oftentimes sort of negate or we look past, in the way we think about who God is. So, um, instead of looking at God and and, and seeing uh, you know a reflection of ourselves, we should actually just pull back for a second and just ask Scripture to. Uh, to 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 speak uh, to, to speak a definition or, or, or a revelation of who God is for us first, and, and when you do that, that's where you get sort of these strange tensions, and those tensions mm -hmm. lie across the line uh, of the relationship. I would say predominantly between the transcendent uh, transcendence of God and the eminence of God. That being who He is in and of Himself. Uh, and then how, that's the transcendence, and then in the eminence, how he relates uh, mm. to the world he's created. Uh, and by God's grace, he has, he, he is totally other than and, and distinct from 
Uh, and so, so we need to see that, and oftentimes that's not on the page for most Christians mm. uh, as they think about who God is, at least, at least from the beginning. That's just, we just don't think in those categories, and that's what the church is there to do. That's what um, you know, we, we need to sort of stop and, and process, so that there is a transcendence. Uh, and, and, maybe underst- and maybe understanding what that is uh, as best we can, and I do think there's mystery there. I do think there's uh, things that we don't comprehend completely because it cuts across our own experience and cr- cuts across our own nature uh, in, in a lot of ways. And then, you know, mix sin into that. There's a, there's a mm. whole other issue that's separating us. So, so the first place to begin is in that transcendence I- imminence discussion. Uh, I think that's a good place to sort of set, set, set this, uh, this understanding uh, between God's relationship to change, that's immutability, and God's relationship to emotions. And to recognize that when we look at God, we, we, are, we are looking at an infinite God. Uh, and so I would actually say before, I mean, impassibility, that idea of just God have, um, have e- emotions, uh, and, and I would say in many ways people are saying, does God have emotions like me? Mm-hmm. Um, th- I would say that that is connected, obviously, to immutability. But I wouldn't want to connect it to something bigger, this idea of him being an infinite God. And then when you start thinking about those categories, then you're pushing on the idea of a God who is uh, beyond the limitations of space and time, where both of those things of change and passions or or emotions Mm -hmm. exist so you've got to say that uh there is a uh, there's a connection but there's also a massive amount of distinction Mm. And, and, and so I think that sort of sets a framework to begin to have that conversation that usually isn't on the table when we start talking about those things I think that's that's a great place to start, and then when we begin to get into the nitty gritty of of it, um, I have emotions. I I well, react. That's, emo- that's, that's debatable. debatable. <laughs> yes, yeah. oh, I know. Okay. Theoretically yes. speaking, theoretically, okay, just pretend <laughs> pr- pretend I have emotions. Let's just say this: Todd's son <laughs> just got married a couple of weeks ago. Do you know when I found out that his son was getting married? Like I know Todd. Like he was like, hey, oh hey. Uh, <laughs> I think my son's getting married this week. I mean, that's what. I'm, okay, yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure note. I told you multiple times. I'm offended you forgot. <laughs> I, I think it was in Garrick's email. I think it was in there, and so I, I totally buy part of my that. argument. That's, yes, too. sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, I have emotions. You have emotions. I, I, I have emotions, right? And and, and, so, and so for me, my my, reoshin, my emotions often are reactionary, and so we think, well, well, isn't that what God does? And volatile. And yeah, it could be sometimes. Yeah, um, and that that makes me authentic. And and then people read on the pages of Scripture; they read God responding to things appropriately. And, and the first thing I would say is, is that, of course, God responds, even on the pages of Scripture, in a manner that is consistent with his character, which never, ever changes, right? Mm. And w- we would probably wonder about a God who had a, a kind of character who didn't respond to sin, or who didn't respond to repentance, and who didn't re- react with joy, wouldn't we, right? Mm. Um, and and uh, But uh, we're, we're also told throughout Scripture— just exactly what you said, that that uh, God does these things. And many of these things we do and we relate to, but we're also told, but God's not like us when he does these. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we repent, we change our mind of things. Why? Well, because we get more information, uh, <laughs> usually. Well, that's not a thing for God, right? He, he, he doesn't get more information. And, and yet when the situation changes, he responds in time that the God who created time, right, responds in time appropriately to that. And, and we see that all through the page of Scripture. Um, does that make him not immutable? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. That just means he's interacting appropriately with his, with his creation. Um, and, I, I, I mean, just to lay all my cards on the table here, I would say that, yeah, God, God has emotions. I, 
I don't think that the passages that speak of God rejoicing or getting angry or jealous, those are anthropopathisms, that is, figures of speech where we attribute something other than the actual emotion to God for the purpose of telling us something about God. Uh, no, I think, I, I think our emotions are imago Dei, um, that we have them because God does. Hmm. Um, but his exercise of them is different than ours, of, of course. Right, yeah. Um, and I think I think there's a there's a an infinite going back to where we were. There's an infinite perfection uh, to his emotions that's informed by all of his character mm-hmm. and all of his nature. So our tendency, oftentimes, and, and and this is what I mean, systematics does this and sort of lends itself to this. Is to sort of you know think of God's character as like a a, a pie, you know, mm-hmm. that we just sort of carve up into different attributes. But what we want to say is that those things are all interconnected and interrelated. So what's happening when, um, you know, when God, so, you know, just think about Jonah, when God relents of bringing punishment to the Ninevites there, that is an expression of, uh, of his covenant promises uh, that he's he's extended this call to change now, you know, change now, or you will receive judgment, or, or mm-hmm. very directly, sort of this, you will receive judgment, um, and he relents of that judgment because they did respond appropriately to that uh, to that call to what to in many ways to reflect his perfect character to remove themselves from idolatry and to respond in repentance. And so what you see often here is, and what I want to emphasize is that immutability and impassibility are not things that sort of limit God and say, oh, here's a stoic God isolated over in the corner and, and he's, you know, we have experience that he doesn't. I want to say, no, that our, our concepts of emotions and our concepts of change are much more limited and smaller than his as it's connected to his whole infinite being, his whole infinite nature. So really what you see, I, I think in a lot of the, the engagements uh, with God and his anger is actually rooted in his perfect holiness as it comes to bear on a world that is not holy, uh, a world that is, uh, you know, limited uh, in, in their being, but also limited and, and broken in their moral nature and moral character. So it's, it's actually an expression of uh, a, an infinite holiness. Um, I, I would say what you see in the, in, in the world as he responds to people, an expression of his infinite love, and ultimately a love that can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish in this world. So these are actually, instead of saying, okay, these are things that are weird and they don't really matter to me, they actually do because they actually bring with it a level of hope, something that my love cannot accomplish. God's love can because it is connected to his infinite nature. Mm-hmm. And for me to actually, and this is one of the things I think is massively important for our world, and, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, usually what we are doing is reverse engineering God's love. We are saying, this is the way I experience love. This is what I think love is. This is what the world tells me love is. And then we pin it to God and say, why aren't you like this? When in reality, I think what should be happening, and I think what scripture is pointing us to, is look at God's love in its infinite nature and rethink what your understanding of love is as you engage it in your current cultural context and your own experiences so that it's actually rewriting us to be less finite, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then... You know, you probably have a whole other show, Garrick, to talk about yeah. this Christologically. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's where things huge... went really crazy. Yes, 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 it, yes. That's where your yeah. email went really crazy. <laughs> yeah, so. But I do think this helps us with that first question we talked about, about the idea of, for example, the Canaanite genocide and things mm-hmm. like that, because part of the issue when somebody is raising that issue is there's an assumption that 
we have certain emotions, therefore we magnify the emotions we have to be really, really big, and that must be what God has or ought to have. And that's that's really the, the direction we do this sort of uh, working from ourselves upward and kind of see God as, as the magnification, the multiplication of what we have. But drawing both here from C.S. Lewis's miracles as well as from Thomas Aquinas, and, and what I think we ought to see is, and I think this is what you're getting at, is that God has these emotions in a perfect way. Mm-hmm. We have them in an in a partial way, mm-hmm. but then added on top of that partialness of it, we have the we have sin entered into it. So we have them in a distorted way. So we have the same emotions God has in some sense, but we have them in a partial and a distorted form, and and we we have them. And but we have them because God had them first, and God had them perfectly, whereas we have them finitely, partially, and distortedly. And if we look at it that way, we see that what God does in punishing in the Canaanite genocide or whatever it may be, that that is an act of, as you said, this act of God's perfect holiness that um, is is somehow God is working. And I know there's a lot of ways to explain that, and that's another episode to itself. But it's the idea that there's that there is something going on there in which it is congruent with the character of God, whatever it may be, however we may understand it. There's something going on there that's congruent with God's character, and it helps if we turn it and see that our reaction to that is actually a partial, a, a, a distorted kind of a, a, a mimicry, an echo of, of an emotion that God has in absolute perfection. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the, the episode that y'all did recently um, on the, the, the new book, The, the Wisdom Pyramid, Pyramid yeah. right, <clears throat> and how kind of what you said, Ryan, is we've we've flipped we've flipped the pyr- the pyramid as far as the the sources of truth that we're that we're looking to or or the sources of interpretation um of of what we're of what we're seeing we've we've flipped it on its head and and uh, have put self um at kind of the the top of the pyramid um it's yeah. the the first place that we try to make sense of of what it is we're seeing in scripture um, uh, as opposed to uh, allowing scripture uh, the the full the full witness the in the complete biblical picture to inform uh, the conclusions we come to yeah yeah I think that's that's very true and if you would allow me at least uh, well one last question um, as you think about that from the apologetic standpoint <coughs> I, I do think I do think one of the major things that I see, and it's connected to what Todd and what we've been talking about, is people come at, and obviously this is sort of that relativistic approach to truth, but people come at truth from their uh, from their own experiences, their own perspective, their own situations in life. How would you help someone uh, sort of look for maybe an objective? place of, of truth or or, or 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 helping them rethink where authority lives mm. yeah because i think that's one of the key issues today is simply is there any authority mm-hmm. outside of myself this i mean it's this radicalization of uh, this expressive individualism and autonomy uh, such that there is no authority left and and i think that's where some some aspects of transcendental and or presuppositional type apologetics actually can be helpful. And I'm not talking about in the full-fledged Vantillian form, et cetera, but I think there's some ways that we can help them to see that you cannot live. There are some things you do believe absolutely to help them to see. There's some things that you believe absolutely in those particular things. And, and you hold on to them and to say, you know what, you're right about that. You're actually correct about what you're believing right there. But your worldview can't account for what you believe that you're actually right about. Your worldview can't account for that. And I think that, that, that 
helps to show that we have a better story mm. that we can tell. That, that's that narratival approach of saying, you actually have a great part of your worldview right here. I agree with you. I think you're right about this, whatever it may be. And then to say, you believe that, you hold that in an absolute way. Whether you believe in absolute truth or not, that part of your worldview, you hold on to that absolutely. It may be your notion of justice and fairness. It may be the dignity of human life and the way it ought to be treated, whatever it may be. But then to say, you know what? Your worldview actually can't account for that. But I, I have a worldview. I have a story to tell that actually can account can account for what your worldview can't account for. And I think that's that type of a of a transcendental argument in in a in a loose approach. I think that sometimes we've kind of dismissed all of that type of argumentation sometimes because of this the misuse of this kind of a transcendental argument for God. But I think there's a narrative transcendental approach to apologetics that can be very helpful in that regard. Yep, that's really helpful. To, to bring all of the threads together I, I still I believe strongly that uh, that this will be so much more difficult um, if 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 this this task these conversations um, are are had um, apart from the context of relationship right a, a, a building of a relationship of trust and I think a, a part of connecting and correcting uh, people's story uh, to to, uh, to the to the greater the true story of the world is I, I think that we need to be also inviting them um, into to and to see uh, our community of faith, which is kind of what TBJ you know mentioned earlier about um, uh, apologetics has to be connected to the church. I I, I think that folks while while we're having these discussions also should be able to see this community of faith that we've placed ourselves in this uh this tradition and this authority that we have willingly placed ourselves under so that all of these um all of these conversation streams all of these uh, these inputs kind of come together to give people a, a fuller picture of what it is that we're saying rather than rather than just relying on really good argumentation mm-hmm. right or rather than um constantly searching and reading all these books for the the silver bullet argument that's just going to kind of wreck someone's worldview and and tear it all down so that you can immediately build it back up and voila they you know they uh, they place their trust in Jesus so anyways i i, I just think it's I think it's all of these, uh, all of these uh, apologetic threads that yeah. that we've mentioned um, throughout our conversation that that uh, help make this uh, possible. Yeah, I think yeah, and when we do that, we're we're basically going all the way back to Aristides in the early part of the second century. If you look at Aristides, his Apologia to Hadrian, what he does is say his primary, the core of what he's saying there, he says, look at the church, mm-hmm. look at the people of God, look at how we care for others, look at how we do life, look at that, he says to him. And then he says, go on after that, he says, read the scriptures after that. But it's just beautiful. He, the, the core part of Aristides' apology in about 125 AD is look at the church and look at how we live. Look at this and see if you do not see truth there. And I think that's what we're actually doing. We're saying, look, your storyline can't account for this, but there's a community of people that though imperfect, though we fall short, there's a community of people where we are living out through the word and through the sacraments and through our lives together, we are living out a life that can actually make sense of the world as it's experienced. I think that's helpful, especially uh, even as people are coming to it, right? They're looking to, uh, they're looking for truth to be experienced and to see it played out live in other people's lives and in the local body. Yeah, I think that's a, a very, very healthy way to go. It's also very convicting. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The church has to do better, I think, in a lot of ways. So, And then if, yep. if just to, to tie it back to one other question that you had there about prayer uh, and God answering prayer, um, 
that our theology has to be livable uh, because it's meant to be livable, right? Uh, God, God created a world that, that we exist in. I, I know that sounds like a tautology, right? But, but, but our lives are to be lived. And so if, if our understanding of God's character is such that when we read the scriptures commanding us to pray and, and the Bible telling us that God answers prayer, and, 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 and our theology gets in the way of us actually living that out the way that God would have us do, then there's something wrong with our theology at that point. Of course God answers prayer. <laughs> of course he does. There's a whole Bible that testifies to that. And so we need to live our lives in, in light of that reality. Um, now, does that mean that it's a simple matter of explaining how a, a meticulously sovereign God, uh, how he engages with prayer. Well, no, th- there's a little heavy lifting to do there, but if my doctrine of providence or immutability gets in the way of me praying, then mm-hmm. then the solution is not to chuck prayer. The solution is I better amend my doctrine of providence at that Amen. point. Yeah, and to rethink and maybe uh, be- build out a bigger understanding of what prayer is. There you go. Yeah. Um, I think that's another thing that's oftentimes missed is the fact that prayer itself, um, you know, we've sort of boil it down into here's my wish list. This is going all the way back to Pearl Jam, Garrett. This is here's <laughs> yeah. my wish list. <laughs> yes. Please fulfill these things. And then when he doesn't, then that wrecks my faith. When in fact, you know, we've got to do something maybe more than just providing God with our wish list and our prayers. Mm-hmm. And, and I think actually part of it is meditating and speaking back to God these very beautiful truths of his immutability and his impassibility. Yeah.